I've got something a bit different for you today, both in content and style. A few weeks ago, I interviewed Coche Inciarte, one of the survivors of the Uruguayan plane crash in Chile in 1972. Coche, along with the other survivors, was forced to eat human flesh to survive almost three months in the fuselage, which is basically the broken body of the crashed plane, in the freezing Andes Mountains. It's quite possibly the most heart-wrenching and awe-inspiring story of all time. I read Coche's poignant new book, Memories of the Andes, which was a horrific but enlightening read that certainly kept me up many nights after putting it down. You can find it on Amazon and all the usual places you find books, and it's one you won't forget in a hurry. While speaking to Koche, who is now in his 70s, I found that it was exhausting for him to recount such a traumatic story to me over Zoom, particularly in his second language of English. So we switched to Spanish to continue the interview while I tried to work out how I'd make this work as a podcast episode. I was determined to bring you this story as so many of you expressed such excitement about the episode. So what I've done is I managed to get an Argentinian editor and sound recordist, Gonzalo Kaplansky, to dub over Coche Spanish and to make this episode more like a short audio documentary. What I like about it is that Gonzalo is in his early 20s, just as Coche was in the plane crash. I mix up his words with those of Coche as well as voice-over sections from myself, so thank you Gonzalo for doing such a wonderful and professional job. I've also supplemented Coche's parts with those of the book's English translator, John Guyver, who is fascinated by the story and has hiked to the crash site. So thank you, John, for your help and insight. Today's bonus episode for patrons features the 10 Inside the Actor's Studio questions for John. I've included some of what Coche said in English at the beginning of the conversation just to give you a bit of an idea of his personality because he's a really optimistic, fun and friendly guy. If you're new, please subscribe to the podcast and share it around. Tell your friends. Find me on Twitter and Instagram on andrewgold underscore OK and watch videos of the podcast by subscribing to youtube.com slash andrewgold1. I'll be back at the end, but here's my little documentary about Koche's story. I hope you like it. Here I am. <laughs> Perfect. Here I am. You see my hand, my fingers. Yeah. What is the thing at the top of the screen? Is it there's something blocking the top of your head? Oh no, this is a a lamp. Oh, that's better. Look at you. You look great. That's better. <laughs> Next Saturday, I'm I'm going to have seventy three years old, my dear. Oh my god. Oh my god. You don't look a day older than seventy one. <laughs> 71, two years ago. <laughs> now it's 73. But I am uh, I am very good. Yeah, you look you look great. And, and happy birthday. One year more. Huh? Un año más. Exactly, un año más. How was my Spanish? I was talking to you in Spanish. Was it good? Notable. Notable. Mucho mejor que mi inglés. En español no te van a entender nada, así que tiene que ser en inglés, pero bueno. Háblame despacio. Eh? Okay, I speak clearly in English, no? Yes, you speak very clearly, not yes. as, a, as a, a British one that spoke with a potato into the mouth. Hello, British. <laughs> hey, you, you know what? Are you in Montevideo now? 
Yes, I live in Montevideo. Uruguay is the country I have visited more than any other country ever. Because you lived in, in Argentina and Buenos Aires, uh, it's closer. Montevideo is closer than Mendoza. <laughs> I had a tourist visa and every 90 yeah. days it finished and I had to leave the country and come back. So I visited yes. Colonia in Uruguay. Colonia? Every 89 days. Each each 89 days, I had to go to Colonia and spend the afternoon <laughs> and then go back to Buenos Aires. It's beautiful, Colonia. It's very beautiful. And I went I went to Montevideo as well, and it's very beautiful too. Yes, yes. Well, it was like a, a Portuguese colony. Yes. was colony. Yeah. Portuguese. Yes, everything is Portuguese. Bloody Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So tell me, um, I read your book. It's beautiful. You read it? Yeah, of course I read it. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> it made me cry a lot. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I really cried. I really got very emotional. So next year will be 50 years since the incident. And last yes. year you wrote the, the Memories of the Andes, which I recommend everybody should buy and, and read. What is it that made you write it nearly half a century later? I don't know why. I need to to share all my, all my experience because I think it's my mission. But it's the difference between uh, me and other people that I lived 72 days in the high mountains of the Andes and it's human flesh. And that moment we lived up there, we did everything that a man has to do to survive. And why to survive? The most important thing that a man has is the family. My mother, my fiancé, <laughs> my brothers. So uh, I went to came back to see them once again. And, but the last two days, I thought that was uh, better to die. Before we hear Koche's story, I want to introduce you to the book's translator, John Guyver. He was given the book Alive, which was turned into a famous movie of the same name, by his mother-in-law. He became fascinated by the story and looked into it further. And then uh, back in 2013, uh, I sort of had a, a, an inkling to have an adventure holiday and um, I saw there was actually a trip to the uh, the site of the accident. A Mexican-American mountaineer called Ricardo Peña does an annual expedition up to the plane crash site and John went along one year. Ricardo had previously discovered the jacket of one of the survivors. He had flown out the back of the plane and been covered in snow for 33 years before Ricardo found it. After the expedition, John went to Uruguay and met some of the survivors as well as the families of those who didn't come back. When I first went there, I just knew one or two people and it was sort of a little bit awkward. You wonder what you're doing there, really. Remarkably, for a book translator, John didn't actually speak their language. But since he's a keen crossword setter, he went about it in quite a laborious way, first translating it word by word and then making it make sense in English, a little bit like a puzzle. Then he'd check in with Coche. I didn't speak any Spanish. I didn't know any Spanish. Wow. So um, I sort of taught myself, um, uh, you know, some Spanish. I mean, I still, it's very difficult for me to understand spoken Spanish because it's just, it's, it's just very fast. But my translation skills got pretty good. And, you know, translating into your language is a much easier thing than translating into someone else's language. So really it's a question of, um, you know, you have to understand 
precisely, you know, the sentence or the paragraph. You have to understand the idiom, and there are lots of online tools to understand various idioms and so on. Uh, and so every chapter I'd translate, I'd send it back to them, they'd go through it, they'd say, well, this doesn't, this isn't quite what I, you know, meant and so on. He begins to tell me the story about a group of friends in 1972 who mostly attended the same school in an affluent part of Montevideo, Uruguay. A neighbourhood of Montevideo called Carrasco, which is, is just this uh, almost, you know, this idyllic place. It's by the, the beach, uh, mm. tree-lined streets. Um, these are professional families, big families, you know, uh, safe neighbourhood. Um, it's just a, a really uh, wonderful place to grow up. Uh, in, in the 70s. The rugby team, is they're, they're actually quite successful. They've won the Uruguayan Championship. Know this team in Chile. They've gone the year before to Chile to uh, fly out to play a game, play with the Chilean national team as well. Hmm. Um, and everyone's excited. Uh, you know, they've chartered a plane with the Uruguayan Air Force, a mad attempt to get the plane full so everyone's can afford it. Uh, and they, they go off and reach the Andes and the weather is bad. They're forced to stop for the night in the beautiful town of Mendoza, where I've been. It's lined with vineyards and old world plazas. They stay up and drink wine together before taking another flight the next day. The pilots decide to take what they believe is a safer route over the Andes. But for some inexplicable reason, they take a wrong turn and fly directly into the Andes. And by the time they realise their mistake... They're stuck in an air pocket. They come out of the clouds and then the pilots see this, you know, mountains all around. They, they sort of put the engines on full power. They try and fly over this ridge. The, the wing catches um, a, a sort of a, a, a rock. Uh, it comes off. The tail of the plane comes off. Some boys come out of the back. Uh, and then it sort of lands on this slope and, and sort of careers down this slope uh, you know, a kilometre or so. The plane rushes down the slope like a toboggan before smashing into a glacier, crumpling up the plane's nose and immediately killing the pilots. Many seats with passengers in them are ripped out and thrown forward by the impact, and many are killed. Here's how Koche remembers it. From the moment of the bang until it stopped, I kept my eyes closed. It is very difficult to keep your eyes open in such circumstances. The plane flew a bit without any noise, only with a whistling sound. And it was clear that the airplane was broken because air was coming in, freezing air. And then a big hit with the belly of the airplane against the snow. And I remember vividly the sound of metal against the snow gliding at high speed. And finally, it stops abruptly, where the seats go forward. I also go forward, but no one behind me squeezes me, because I was the last one. After hearing people yelling and calling for help, I wanted to leave. I turned around, and behind me there was no more plane. It was cut off right behind me. I went out to the floor, and there, with the people standing, we saw how a colleague came stumbling down and falling through the footprint left by the plane in the snow. He slipped like a thousand meters. And we yelled, here, here, but at that moment, he disappeared, as if the snow had swallowed him. We jumped into the snow. My first contact with it was at that moment, and we sank all the way down to the waist. And I was very scared. Our friend 
had disappeared. So we didn't know what to do, and suddenly night fell. Como Logically, night fell, and with it, the most intense cold that you can imagine. If you sat still for five minutes, you could no longer move your fingers. They were getting cold and hard. With the night came the cold. But we didn't see anything, luckily. We couldn't move because the night was dark and we couldn't adapt to the dark. It was penetrating, opaque. And we spent the night hitting each other in the back, blowing hot air on our backs, not letting ourselves sleep so as not to freeze. I thought that I would never see a new sunrise. The next day, Saturday, October 14, 1972, I woke up. We went out and made contact with reality to look at everything that had happened. We figured out who was still with us and who was not. Those who had remained above at the crash site. Those of us below, alive, wounded and dead. Some froze to death that night. They were wearing light clothes on the plane, so had no jackets in minus 30 degrees centigrade. Koche lay close to another man that night to keep warm. He credits that with saving his life that first night. So these boys have sort of gone from this wonderful privilege of existence into this remote Andean valley, you know, high up 4,000 meters. Yeah, the next few days are about trying to deal with the injured, trying to sort of get things organized and so on. They find a little radio. Um, they hear that the search has been called off. Um, they make some attempts to walk to see where they are, but they can't get anywhere. It's really cold. Well, there we started to put the house in order. Once we had the house in order, several days later, we did something terrible. Because we knew that no one was going to feast the death because we sheltered ourselves inside a fuselage and pressed against each other, tightly packed, we could survive. Nobody was going to die of thirst because there was a lot of snow. Although we couldn't eat it because it inflamed your throat and you can swallow. It's horrible. We melted it when there was sun and when there was no sun, we did not drink water. At night, you were delirious, but we were going to starve. We saw the bodies of our dead friends and each one of us thought inwardly that the protein was there and the energy we needed was there too. Later, in a general assembly, we all laid out the reasons why we should do that. Some disagreed, but ended up agreeing later when their fear of dying kicked in. We made a pact among ourselves, among the living, because we could not consult the dead, that if one of us died, they would take my body and vice versa. Because that was our protein source. And if we were dead, it was useless. So I let them take my body. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. 
on What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. If I die, then you use my body for food. And that's how they sort of justify doing it in the first place. I mean, there were boys who, you know, were very proactive. There were the expeditionaries. There were the people, the boys who, who you know, who, who did the cutting, which, you know, was horrendous um, job. Yeah. Obviously, three, three of the oldest boys, they were cousins. Um, did it away from the plane um, to protect the to protect the oh. younger boys. Wow! Um, and then and then some of the others sort of cut it into smaller pieces, and then it was distributed. And there were some who were in charge of tidying the cabin and stuff like that. And then there were a few who who really weren't capable of of doing much. Holding hands, we decided to eat. But between deciding to eat and doing it, there's a very large and long distance there's a great distance because when you go to grab a piece of meat from your dead friend your hand does not obey you doesn't obey you must make a great mental effort to force yourself to do it when you force your hand to do it after a few hours your mouth does not open and later when you manage to get the frozen piece of meat into your mouth your throat will not swallow it. And so, after that effort, where a lot of mental energy was spent, when you were able to swallow, with my hand on my heart, I said to myself, I am saved. I am going to get out of this one. 
Not many days passed, and a terrible avalanche came upon us, as if to say, no, you're not saved. No, no, no. Not yet. And then two weeks after the accident, they, they sort of finally got a little bit organized. They're starting to think about expeditions. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're starting eating regularly now. Uh, and then they're hit by this avalanche. And the avalanche enters the back of the fuselage, which is sort of open. It's been broken open when the tail comes off. It sort of covers all the boys and it covers the plane outside as well. So they're sort of doubly buried. Uh, and there's one boy who jumps up at the last minute and he starts digging people out and eventually all but eight of them uh, are sort of uncovered and eight of them die. The plane fuselage is packed full of snow while the surviving passengers gasp for air in the small space at the top of the plane. They're fast running out of oxygen. And that was the worst of all. I thought that the food had been the worst, but no, the avalanche was even worse. We were buried there for three days and three nights without oxygen. Luckily, they find a sharp tool and are able to pierce the roof of the plane with it. They've bought some time, but now must tunnel their way out of the plane between the bodies of their recently dead friends. At the end, someone said, I'm going to make a tunnel to the cockpit. They finally came out on November 1st. Outside, there was snow, but loose. So the snow that was above the plane fell inside and behind it, a ray of sunlight. Three days before that, we were in total darkness and a ray of sunlight came to which we crawled like rats, like rats following the ray of sunlight. And then we went out. I remember that I was one of the first ones because I was closer to the cockpit and it was beautiful to see the clean white snow. We couldn't see neither the plane nor the dirt that we made. It was all white, like a new beginning. Once out, they get organized again and plan expeditions. They've been down here now, half starving and frozen for months, while many are suffering with broken bones and gangrene. Three boys volunteer to climb over the blizzard-swept mountains and look for help. As reward for their sacrifice, they're given benefits while they prepare. They get the best places to, to sleep. They get more of the food uh, to just strengthen them. And then they, they head off into the unknown. The remaining survivors can see them climbing a nearby mountain for three days. Upon reaching the top, the three of them expect to see the green hills of Chile. Instead, just white, snowy mountains as far as the eye can see. One of them decides to head back so that the other two will have enough food for what will be a far longer journey than they imagined. The two who go on are prepared to die on their voyage. But after 10 days, they finally reach a river in the foothills of Chile. They see this uh, sort of shepherd across a sort of this raging torrent. Um, and he, um, you know, he sees them and he, he basically rides down into back to civilization and alerts the authorities. And um, there are 16 of them saved in the end. Um, wow. So it's quite a remarkable, um, you know, sequence of events. The rancher threw bread across the river to the two men and rode 10 hours to the nearest town to relay the story to authorities. The following day, two helicopters were sent to collect them and go back to the plane site to reach the others. Since visibility was low, one of the helicopters had to stay another day, meaning the rescuer had to stay the night in that nightmarish plane fuselage. They were all taken to Santiago, the capital of Chile, where they were welcomed as heroes. 
they'd go into a shop to buy some clothes and they'd be sort of showered with clothes and gifts and so on. No one would let them pay for anything. Um, and then, you know, the it hit about the, what, what they call the anthropology or, um, mm. you know, they, they called it cannibalism. And the, the survivors like to, you know, to use the word anthropophagy because uh, that's, mm. uh, you know, eating human flesh through necessity mm. rather than through sort of custom. Cannibalism is when they kill someone to eat. When you kill another to eat them. They did that in the islands in the Caribbean and they called them cannibals who ate humans. What we did was eat people who were already dead and that is not called cannibalism. It's called necrophagy. Necrophagy. No? Mm -hmm. There were many journalists who speak of cannibalism and they are ignorant of what the word actually means. They name it, but they don't know what it means. I think you said there was a Uruguayan newspaper that had like cannibalism written on the top. How did it feel to... Mm. It was a Chilean newspaper. A Chileno, a Chileno. In Uruguay, they treated us very well. In Chile, cannibalism appeared in their newspaper. Those who wrote that are ignorant. Later in time, they realized their ignorance. And there's also some Englishman who spoke of cannibalism. And I told him to correct it. That he was wrong, that it wasn't cannibalism. It was necrophagy. And to be a journalist, he lacked a lot of cultural condition. And when that hit, they got a lot of negative. I mean... You know, if, that, if social media had been around then, it would have been horrendous. Upon returning, a lot of reaction was mixed, and one account referred to Koche, who had serious gangrene and couldn't move, as a parasite. There was a writer that said that I was a parasite because I couldn't walk. After the avalanche, my foot froze, and the blood stopped flowing, and the oxygen that the blood carries stopped entering my foot, and then I got gangrene. So I took off the three pairs of stockings that I was wearing, and all my toes were black, and my foot was swollen. Oh my god! Oh my god! Once, yeah. once more. Oh. Another thing: I'm already having a hard time, and this is going to make me have a yeah. worse time. One of the surviving passengers was a first-year medical student. He got hold of an axe that was on the plane and said, "I'm going to cut your leg." It was horrible, and that is why that writer said I was a parasite. Years later, I went to London to his house in Holland Park, and I told him, no, I was not a parasite. I was just a cripple who couldn't walk. In the end, even though you can die from septicemia, Koche refused. He cut a cross into his leg and squeezed out blood and pus for days while immobile in the plane. It saved his leg and his life. That wasn't the only insult aimed at Koche and the others as people began to hear the news about what they had done to survive. They had to confront it head on. When they got back to Uruguay, there was a press conference and, um, you know, one of the boys, um, very, very eloquent, um, you know, talked to the press conference about it and talked about it in very sort of elevated tones. And um, uh, and that was it. And then people sort of accepted accepted it. Yeah. I think the overwhelming consensus, would you say, nowadays is that they, they did nothing wrong, nothing that the rest of us wouldn't do. Several of them didn't want to do, didn't want to do that. So they, they sort of held out. 
and then one or two held out a few days more. But eventually, everyone everyone did it. Uh, and so I think that basically says if if we'd been in that sort of situation, you know, we would have done we would have done the same. There are probably four or five of them who just said, "Look, we have to do this. We're going to do it. You should follow suit." And so uh, eventually, everyone did. It's unimaginable, isn't it, what they had to go through? Yeah. And I suppose it, it makes it it's something I hadn't really thought about till just now. The fact that it's your friends, I think, would make it even harder. You, you really know yeah. somebody. I mean, you, you might be able to cognitive dissonance if you don't know them. You might be able to just forget that they're a human or whatever. Yeah. But that's your friend. Yeah. That must uh, it's unimaginable, isn't it? Well, I, th- I think especially, um, well, I mean, the breaking of the taboo, obviously, was very difficult. But after the avalanche as well, you know, there the, were the, uh, the dead in there with them. And that, that was all they had for a week or two. Um, and so because every, everything else was buried. Uh, wow. So, so you know, these are, these are people they have been chatting with. and Hours earlier. But, but also, these, you know, these are people who'd, who'd sort of joined the, the pact and said, look, you know, if I die, then yeah, you know, then I'm happy for you to use my body. There were many near-death experiences in the avalanche. There were many people who were just on the point of dying, and you know, some some saw themselves sort of from above. Okay. Um, you know, the the typical sort of uh, near-death experiences that people have, for, you know, whatever the mechanism is, um, and some of them, you know, said they felt such an ecstatic feeling of, of, you know, some of them felt, well, now, now my body can be used to help, wow. you know, to help my friends. And I can't think of, of any account that I've read by any of the survivors where they weren't at sort of peace with themselves at that, at that sort of point where they were just about to die. It felt like Koche for days. He, he was like, before they got uh, rescued, he was for, for days at this point of like, I'm prepared to die now, I guess you just you just given up. But at the, at the mm. end, yes. I mean, he he basically said. Um, I mean, in the avalanche, he was another person who was very close to uh, to dying um, before he was sort of, you know, uh, the snow was sort of pulled away from his mouth. Wow. And he and he um, after that, he well, he wasn't afraid of dying anymore, um, mm. and, and and he never has been since that since that wow. time. Pass. There was never peace. There was always conflict. To live or to die. The decision to die that I made in those days was to put an expiration date on the suffering. So I was very calm after I decided to die on the 24th, Christmas Eve, before Christmas. So he was saying, well, look, you know, I've got to struggle on. Struggle on every day is really, really hard. Uh, he didn't like to. He didn't like to eat. He didn't eat very much. Um, he got gangrene. He was um, not very mobile because he wasn't mobile. He didn't eat so much. He wasn't able to help around the plane so much. Uh, and he just decided, well, you know, it's a hard struggle. I'm not afraid of dying. I'm. I'm just going to wait till Christmas, and then I'm gonna. Then I'm gonna let myself go. Wow, and they were saved just before. Two days before, yeah. On December 22nd, I woke up. We already were sleeping more because it was warmer. Daniel Fernandez woke me up with the news that they had heard Nando and Roberto on the radio. 
Then, excited, we hugged and jumped inside the fuselage. The plane, which was on a pedestal of ice, was moving. We had to jump off and go down. All the snow had melted. Outside, there was a great big jug, a stainless steel tank filled with water. Snow that melted in the heat of December day. We washed our faces, we combed our hair, and then we were well-dressed as we had fallen, but dirty. We brushed our teeth too, even with toothpaste. And we sat down to wait for the rescue plane looking up. It was 10 a.m. and they arrived only at 12.45. We thought he had hallucinated the news. And at 12.45, we felt some distant. We said, they got lost, oh no, they got lost, what idiots. Suddenly, after a while, someone says, hey, look, look, here they come. There were two little black dots there that were moving at high speed towards us. They were going up, 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 and suddenly they were above us. And they were two helicopters with the noise of the engines at full power, which was the most precious symphony I had ever heard in my entire life. A song of joy. And I thought of it as the hardest, the most shocking thing I had ever felt in my life. I went back to my family. It was what I wanted most. Because when you're alone, lost, and the only thing left for you is to die, family is the most important thing. Everything else does not matter. An announcement was made in Montevideo that 16 survivors had been found. Coche's fiancé, Soledad, gathered with a huge crowd in a town plaza to hear a list of names of survivors being rolled off on a radio. TV station vans competed for space as they waited to get the end of the biggest story in Uruguay's history. When the speakers announced the names of the survivors, it was totally silent. More and more names were read out without a sign of Coche. The 11th, the 12th, the 13th survivor was read out, and then they heard it. José Luis Iriarte. They had gotten his name, Inciarte, wrong, but it had to be him. Number 14. After months of believing him dead, Soledad and his family couldn't believe it. He was alive. Coche spent days in hospital in Chile. He recalls not being able to stand under the power of the shower. One day, he heard a voice outside his hospital room in Chile. It was that of his uncle. Seconds later, he looked up to see his family at the door of his hospital room. He hadn't expected them to come all the way from Uruguay. They hardly recognized Coche, who was less than half his former weight, but it was a moment of joy like no other. He writes of that moment, I wanted to respond to them, but I couldn't catch my breath. In between fits of crying, I spent the rest of the time just looking at them with glistening eyes, with all the love that I felt for them at that moment, and which I still feel today. Soledad and Coche soon got married. They're still together today, more than 50 years later. The translator, John, is now working on a new book about the tragedy this time doing interviews with the families of those who didn't come back. A new slant on the story.
I want to create a more balanced uh, story because uh, the survivors are very high profile now. They've been doing lectures around the world and everything that can be written about them has been written about them. Uh, but because of this sort of very you know, close community uh, that the survivors came back into, they were living side by side with, you know, families who lost their sons, boyfriends or cousins or, or friends. Uh, and so for, for many years, you know, that was very, very difficult and it wasn't really talked about. Time has passed now and I was able to speak to uh, to most of the families, uh, as many brothers and sisters now. The, the parents' generation has, to a large extent, died out. They must have felt like they're sort of almost crashing the party or, or ruining the, you know, there was a celebration, wasn't there? Yeah. Just absolute joy yes. and elation. Uh, yeah. And so you feel yeah. like anytime you, you can't even mention it. Whereas if they died in some other tragedy, it would maybe be spoken about more. But this sort of, it ruins the the, the happy ending, so to yeah. speak. I mean, it was not only that. I mean, you know, they, 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 they'd lost their children and then suddenly they heard there were 16 survivors and there was hope again. And then they then they lost that, mm. uh, you know. And then uh, you know the stuff about what they had to do to survive came out. And then um, and you know and then they're living side by side with these people who are, have been you know very elevated. Uh, and then the the bodies was you know the, the remains were still up on on the mountain, so they they never had a proper goodbye down you know down down in in, in Montevideo. So and half half eaten on the on the mountains. Yeah, I mean the, the remains were, were, were sort of buried um, uh, by the uh, by the rescue forces. Uh, there's a grave up there, and when you go yeah. up to the mountain, you it's sort of there are quite a few expeditions up there every year now, and it's sort of more like a, a pilgrimage up there, and wow. people actually get very very emotional. And um, you know, there's a grave with lots of little plaques, and um, you know, people sort of uh, meditate, and you know. A lot of the families have been up there. How arduous is it to sort of do the the typical excursion? Well, it's sort of um, maybe a four or five day thing from uh, on horseback. I mean, um, no, I mean two days up and two days back on horseback. Okay. Well, mountain mountain horses. They're sort of very strong mountain streams. You have to go over and sort of ravines and stuff like that. But the the horses are, are brilliant. I mean, they're they're very sure footed. Wow, yeah, um, they have to be. My words. It's a good experience, actually. So it's something mm. I'd recommend to people. Well, maybe some of the listeners will find, you know, and go go and do that hike and excursion after reading your book. Yeah, it's usually sort of sometime between January and March, which is sort of the summer. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. As for Koche, he was clearly tired from talking to me about such traumatic events and wanted to go. But I had one more question. I got one more question. The last one. Okay, it's a hard question. Uh, yeah. If you could go back in time, would you want it to not have happened? Que no hubiera pasado, sí. Yes, I prefer that it had not happened because I would be with my friends who died drinking mate here or drinking scotch, Red Label, and they would know my children and my grandchildren and I would know all their children and grandchildren because my best friend, Gaston Costemale, died there. 
I never saw him again since October 13th because he was up there in the back row. He was the one who invited me to sit down next to him, but another one sat down before me. So I went to the front part and I wish this had never happened. There are always some friends, colleagues who say yes, and that they will live it again. But I say no, because you can't imagine how bad it was what we went through. We had a very bad time. People are incapable of realizing what it feels, having that anguish pressing against your chest. It feels like breathing with the heart and not with the lungs. It makes you want to cry, cry a lot. And you don't do it so that the others don't feel the need to. Only at night and without making any noise could the anguish be despair and released a little. We had been left for dead Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it was really, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you to, to you because uh, the questions that you ask are really of high level. They're sincere, very honest, and of very good level. Thank you very much. Send my love to Soledad and your family. And of course, I'll tell her right now. A hug for you and many kisses. Abrazo. Un abrazo. Y muchos besos. Bye-bye. Oh, that was lovely. What a nice man. I hope you liked the documentary style. At first, I was worried about how it would sound and how much time it would take to edit, but I started to really enjoy putting it together that way. So let me know what you thought. Get in touch uh, so I know if I should do ones like that in the future. The music was by David Feslian and Ketza, and you can find both of their music online. Really great stuff if you're making documentaries. It was really inspiring to have the opportunity to speak to Koche and was a privilege to be able to make a little documentary about him. Remember to get Memories of the Andes on Amazon or in all the normal places. There'll be a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening and remember for the bonus part with John, head to patreon.com slash andrewgold or download the Patreon app. Thanks to my newest patron, Kirsty G. I very much appreciate the support. I didn't want to say your full name in case you'd rather be anonymous, but let me know and I can shout you out again next week if you'd like with both names. Uh, please all remember to keep reviewing on Apple or CastBox. I got five new reviews this week. Four of them, five star, and one of them just three star. So let's start with the bad one. Somebody called Never Lacking wrote, Hit and Miss. I've listened to all the episodes now, and while I like Andrew in all the episodes, I just find some of the guests quite boring. This week was the first time I've got halfway through and just switched off. And then there's a, an emoji of somebody looking, they've got their hands up, and they look a bit uh, uh, quizzical, I suppose. Or like, you know, oh, I had to switch off. Why was that person so boring? I don't know who that was, which episode it was. Um, but at least they like me. That's the main thing, right? But no, fair enough. There are, Look, there are 20,000 people listening, so some are going to find some guests boring and some are going to love those guests. But at least Never Lacking, that's the name of the, the commenter, lives up to their name 
by so far never missing an episode. They said, uh, you know, I, I like Andrew in all the episodes. So I hope you found this one more to your liking, never lacking. You can't find Koche's story boring, surely. Uh, so I expect another review after this one from him or her saying that they found it very, very interesting. Alex Z or Alex Z in the US wrote The Evolution of Journalism. Great show. I heard your episode on Nama's feed. Uh, that's that's Nama Cates, who uh, talked a few weeks ago about incels, uh, in, involuntary celibates. That was fascinating. Um, and she continues, And I've been listening to backlogs ever since. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Alex. That's lovely. That's a lovely review. And here's another lovely review from Mildred Hubs in the UK, who wrote brilliant podcast. I happened to stumble onto this podcast and have been hooked ever since. It's led me to start following interesting guests on social media to keep up with their content, downloading their podcast, brackets, Bed of Lies is excellent, purchasing their books and recommending them to friends and to really question my own thoughts, judgments and beliefs. I had no idea what an incel was. I had never considered the effect of woke culture I'm currently reading Confessions of a Sociopath and Emmy Thomas makes some mind-blowing arguments, some of which I agree with. I just finished the Dr. Death episode and I was gripped throughout. The subject matter and range of guests are fantastic and long may it continue. Andrew, I like your voice and interview style and I have recommended the podcast to everyone. Warm regards, Laura. Oh, thank you, Laura. What a well thought out and beautiful, beautiful uh, review. Thank you. I really, I loved reading that one. And I think I shared that one on Twitter um, last week because it was so touching. KG70, also in the UK, wrote, So brilliant. This is such a great podcast series with fascinating interviewees. There's such a diverse range of people. And Andrew has wonderful skill in asking the right questions, pushing when appropriate, and giving people plenty of time to talk. Perfect length too. Highly recommend. Oh, thank you for that, KG70. And it's so great to read these because it's it's it helps me to be able to work out what are the bits that are working for people and what people like. And it, it's made me feel more confident in letting the the interviewee talk, you know, and not thinking, oh, should I be speaking more? Uh, I feel much more relaxed having read a lot of these reviews in just going, okay, you tell me your story. You're, you're an interesting person. And speaking of interesting people, the final review comes from Sargio9876. Excellent listening. Love this podcast, especially the episode with Dr. Nitschke. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for all your kind words. Even the bad reviews help me to feel that there are people out there listening and enjoying. I'll see you next week when I'll be talking to Professor Sue Black, not the criminal anthropologist Professor Sue Black, who was amazing a couple of months ago, but another amazing Professor Sue Black, who is a computer scientist known for saving Bletchley Park, where Alan Turing and thousands of others cracked the German codes in the war. See you next week. 